0: Welcome once again to the Brentwood Baptist Life Group Leader Podcast, a place where all group leaders at all campuses can come together to have a conversation about what we're teaching in our life groups. The focus for this week is gospel conversations. Our text is John chapter four, verses one through 42. I'm here with Armin Oganesian, intern in adult groups at the Brentwood campus, and I'm Paul Wilkinson. You are listening to the Brentwood Baptist Church Life Group Leader Podcast, a resource to equip and encourage group leaders on their journey toward being disciples and making disciples through life groups. All right, Armin, you're really excited about this yeah. text. So lead us. What? Where'd your mind go as you were studying this?
1: Uh, I mean, it went all kinds of directions. Uh, I think poignantly... One place is the example that Christ in his person gives of a gospel conversation, which we can't help but like when you read the passage, that's the first thing that stands out. Our Lord addresses this woman right where she is, addresses her ethical issues, addresses her theological conversations, but ultimately, as we'll talk about more, leaves her with Christ himself, the living water. And I, I just, It's mesmerizing to see that Christ, the creator of the heavens and earth, the one for whom, by whom all things are created, has humbled himself even to interact with a woman who has failed so incredibly. And to be so charitable in his interactions is just, I think, it's just mind-blowing.
0: Yeah, so as we were chatting about this this morning, you were very uh, jazzed up on the ethical dimension. But what I like the most, and even what you just said, is that as you were closing there about Christ humbling himself to engage with our stuff, it's just the incarnation, is that the theological manifests itself in the ethical. You, you can't really split it. And yeah. if, we, if we split it, we're doing a disservice uh, to the Bible's teaching.
1: Yeah, it's just our it's our slogan. The whole gospel to the whole person. And we see vision Christ statement. It's not a vision, slogan. Sorry, oh vision statement. And we see Christ exemplifying that. The whole gospel to this whole person right where she is. I I also when you when you think about it, what's amazing is Christ
0: even demeans himself to go to a place where regular Joes don't go. All right, so Bible Hub or Bible Study Tools, two really good websites where you can get Bible encyclopedias, so that's where I am now. I try to get resources that are accessible to everyone and not cheat with some of the software that I use, but there's a classic, 1935, so it's not the newest uh, volume, but a lot of it is still course stuff that really um, hasn't changed, not a lot of new research In some of these areas called the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, James Ord, a number of other guys, I think Mullins Mm -hmm. was in on this one, Uh, but really good stuff. So if you go to either Bible study tools or Bible hub, I generally use Bible hub, no particular reason. It's just easier. Well, I guess the reason is easier to search the Greek language on it to me, but both are really good websites. But as I look topically into the um, isbe international standard bible encyclopedia and look at the samaritans you get a good chunk of some of the stuff that was going on around the the times that really caused some of the split that really caused some of the frustration between the two
1: yeah and you have to remember samaria was the name of the northern kingdom and that's where they get the name samaritan Uh, you have to remember that after the two kingdoms split Israel, the temple stays in the south. That's why she even has this discussion with her. And when they return from exile, Samarians make their own place of worship, uh, that does not accord with the scriptures. And we see our Lord, he does not say, Oh, that's it. He answers her question and he answers her according to the scriptures. Jerusalem, the temple, is where you worship. How does he know that? Because he knows the scriptures. He knows that you can't worship Christ in any shape or freedom. You cannot worship God in any shape or form you
0: please, but you have to worship God as God has prescribed you to worship Him. So here's some of what it says in that resource. After the captivity of Israel, B.C. 721, and in, in our Lord's time, the name was applied to a peculiar people whose origin came about this way. The final captivity of Israel by Shalmaneser we may conclude that the cities of Samaria were not merely partially, but wholly depopulated of their inhabitants in 721 B.C., and that they remained in this desolate state until, in the words of Second Kings 1724, the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Kutha and from av uh, and from hamath and from sephravaim and placed them in the cities of samaria instead of the children of israel and they possessed samaria and dwelt in those cities thus the new samaritans were Assyrians by birth or by subjugation the strangers whom we now um, assume have been placed in the cities of samaria were of course idolaters and worshiped a strange medley of divinities And then so, of course, like you say, the Northern Kingdom, these people all intermarry and become this mixed um, ethnicity of individuals who don't worship Yahweh only, but incorporate a lot of some sort of syncretism. Pagan Yeah, is exactly what it is. Syncretism. Unpack that word.
1: Uh, They syncretize two. they make two religions into one. So like, oh, I like Jesus, but I also like Buddha. So I'm going to follow both of those. I'm going to syncretize the parts I can. Get rid of the parts that can't. So
0: And you see it a lot in uh, missionary work. So for instance, you go into a place that's maybe animistic or worships. I'm thinking of one story in particular, I believe it was Peru. Yeah. A lot of miners there in the caves and they had certain deities over the cave and then so now in comes Roman Catholic with uh Roman Catholic theology. Yeah. And they're like, Okay, now we have Jesus and we still have okay, our yeah <laughs> we still have our cave idol <laughs> yeah. that we use when we when we go in there. So matters came to a climax at about uh, 409 B.C. Manasseh, a man of priestly lineage, on being expelled from Jerusalem by Nehemiah for an unlawful marriage, obtained permission from a Persian king of his day, Darius, to build a temple on Mount Gerizim for the Samaritans, with whom he had found refuge. The animosity of the Samaritans became more intense than ever. And then, so now that in large part, so I encourage you all to read the rest of the that background, too. But that tells you at least how this distinct temple came up where if the Samaritans wanted God, they needed to go to the temple mm-hmm. on uh, Mount Gerizim. Whereas the Jew wanted God, they need to go to Jerusalem and never the two shall mix. And one of the commentaries I was reading said it wasn't, the segregation came later. There was an edict uh, shortly after the time of Christ that put a real, uh, a real bind on the Samaritans. So one example of this would be that Samaritan women were considered defiled by birth. So to interact with them, particularly for a Jewish man, would necessarily bring defilement upon them. So it hadn't reached that regard in Jesus' day, but it was still an extreme dislike and an extreme avoidance where they were seen as lesser than, um, not fully the people of God. And it's interesting then to think about how God First changes the heart of the Jews. Think about the progression in Acts: mm-hmm. Jews, Samaritans, and then to yeah. Gentiles. It's
1: yep, that kind of touches on what we talked about yesterday when we talked about why is he only going to why exclude the house Gentiles? Why only the house of Israel? You see that progression that's echoed in Acts.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, look up Samaritans was the topical search string I used in BibleHub.com or BibleStudyTools.com. One thing I love to talk about whenever we talk about this passage, uh, John 4, is the promise and the privilege of the New Testament believer of being indwelt by the Spirit of God. Mm. The question that she asked Jesus is so stunning. Do we worship on this mountain or that mountain or in that temple? So which temple do we go to? Because we know now, looking back on a lot of Old Testament text, but the general mindset of the rabbinical literature of the day was if you want God, you need to get yourself to a temple or get yourself to a prophet. They had the word of God. That's where the presence of God resided. In the New Testament, however, Jesus' answer is so powerful. uh, Neither. You're going to worship him in spirit and in truth. And I think if, if you help your group understand that, that they are now the equivalent of the Old Testament temple of God, That wherever they set up shop, on their street, in their workplace, wherever, that they are literally the temple of God indwelt by the third person of the Trinity and are the mediators of Christ's relationship to his creation. That is a stunning sort of existence. So encourage your people, challenge them to really meditate and think seriously upon what it means to be the temple of God in their own life where they live, work, and play. One of our values, and these will continue to leak out over the coming years, is crossing cultures. Um, I think it's, it's – we live in a pluralistic society. We, we live in a society that's mm. sort of uh, extreme syncretism in a way. Everything is equally valid in, in in a lot of ways. So in your dealings down at Tennessee State, do you deal with pluralism a good bit?
1: Uh, not very much, actually, surprisingly. I've had um – um. Most of my students would claim to be Christians.
0: Yeah. I don't think... But what about their judgment toward other views? I'm talking about the cultural milieu of pluralism where we ought not judge others. If they want to oh, believe I that, see. that's okay. what you're saying. Yeah, For yeah. me to say that my religion is inclusivistic and in that all can be saved, but particular in that that salvation comes to the person of Christ, that that's a mega offense yeah, in a lot of ways.
1: certainly is. Yeah. That is of today. Yeah. Even if a student happens or even if an individual happens to be a Christian, uh I think that's is even true even in the church to some extent. Definitely. Uh even if I happen to be a Christian, I wouldn't assume to push that on somebody else, right? That's that works for me, that works in my house, that's great. But for you and your house, you do you, if that's Buddha, if it helps you, that's all that matters. uh which I you know, clearly isn't the case, right? There's Truth and Christ's exclusive claims excludes that, and that's later in John where he says, "I am the truth, I am the way, and I'm the life." He is the only way. So, if you're truly going to be a Christian, you have to exclude other people, other religions. If you're truly going to follow Christ, Christ Himself says that it's not Paul, it's not Peter, it's not these other individuals. It is Christ Himself who claims exclusivity.
0: Yeah, and yet we're called to cross these cultures. Uh you read a lot of Paul's writings and a, a lot of his effort was expended upon how do we how do the Jews for whom through whom the promise came now incorporate these Gentiles into into their culture as children of the promise. So it's uh it's difficult to cross cultures at times. But I like what you said there, Armin, that we don't we can't we can't give our theology away to cross the culture. But what I do like is that the ethical transcends culture in many, many ways, at least sort of the natural law ethic, I guess we could say, sort of the Romans 2 ethic, Um, that it's generally clear to everyone that you ought to not kill people, mm. uh, you ought not murder, uh, particularly for no reason kind of thing. So exclude just war theory and these sort of things for now. So I think the ethical can certainly be an on-ramp to engage with individuals in the uh theological Salvation realms. So, what kind of ethical stuff do you get into oh, on the uh, on the campus there when you teach philosophy and intro to religion? Oh,
1: I I teach all kinds of things. Uh, I've never done the moral argument. So, uh, yeah. moral are argument. there one
0: or two issues that the students bring up more than others?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I teach religion. So, one of the things I do is I say, "Hey, why don't you all go ahead and make a religion?" Mm. And then I teach them that religions are composed of these things. One of the things they're composed of is ethics. So I tell them, go back and make a religion, but have ethics in it. And universally, universally, all my students say, Oh, uh, you have to be tolerant and you have to universally. I mean, every religion had this mm-hmm. tolerant and you have to protect the environment. I, there is this moment in class where you ask them, Oh, that's interesting. You all have that. Did your parents teach you that? No. Did your, did, did you learn that at church or from your friends? No. Where did you get that from? Right? The media. Yeah. <laughs> media, the schools, the teachers. Yeah. It's interesting where they're getting ethics from uh, and alarming that they're getting their ethics from Netflix. And the the church has
0: always been the, the center for ethical thought. Um, I can't think of a single theologian, honestly, that didn't. I'm just racking my brain here in church history. I can't think of a single theologian who didn't have at least as much ink to spill on how we ought to live our lives within the culture. I mean, just think of Paul, I guess.
1: Yeah, I think it's impossible to think about God, think about those things, and not think, oh, how does this change me? What does that mean when I go to the bus station and interact with those individuals? Can't think, oh, Christ
0: took on flesh. That means nothing for me as I walk about in the day. Yeah, so think about your role as group leader You're not just teaching the folks in your group with you. You're equipping them to be able to help others believe and follow Jesus, be changed by Jesus, and live on mission with Jesus. And so this is part of it. How are they supposed to deal with these ethical issues with their children? And I guarantee you their children are are confronted with the same things, tolerance, tolerance. However that's defined, are we defining tolerance biblically for our children and and for the next generations? Are we properly defining care and stewardship of the environment? Are we properly defining marriage and sexuality? And so the church can't shove its head in the sand and not talk about these things because it's illusory to think that our people don't involve these things. It's kind of like a fake harmony or a a mirage in a way where we have, we think we have unity, but it's only because we don't talk about anything serious. And so your your people and your people's families are confronted with the ethical daily yeah. um, on their social media feeds and everywhere else. Are we equipping them properly with theology to handle it, with the Bible mm. to handle it, with yeah. the arguments for God or for scripture or for the value of Christian living? Yeah. Uh, we, we, that's got to be a part of our teaching. And
1: thinking about tolerance, the Christian is truly the only one in a position to believe against racism Mm. because they're the only – it's in Christian doctrine. We learn about the image of God, and that image is what gives humans value. So as a Christian, I am the only one actually in position to say racism is an evil. Nobody else, definitely not uh, a naturalist, is in a position to think that way or speak that way.
0: Good. I'm going to segue that. I was thinking about responding to it, but I think I'm just going to segue to the moral argument because it's just a really good setup. And the moral argument, it's just, it's stunning to me what I think the church, and I'm saying the church proper, I'm not talking about our campuses in particular, I'm talking about the people of God that will often not fight for things, we'll just give them over to the culture to have. It frustrates me when I read the history of philosophy in particular (laughs) to see what the church, who in many ways the church gave away. But the moral argument for God's existence is pretty basic. So Craig's version goes this way. If there is no God, then there are no objective moral values and duties. However, there are objective moral values and duties. Therefore, uh, there is a God. And so I think it's stunning to think back at what you just said, that universally in your group, everyone said tolerance and um, environmental stewardship. And you want to ask them, okay, why? (laughs) Why? What's yeah. the what transcends that? Yeah. What what anchors it? Because obviously, you all think is objectively true yeah. because you all teach it as a f- core of your religion that yeah. you're having them create up as a um, thought experiment and exercise. And so the question is, how do we get objectivity in that ethic? Well, you got to have something transcendental, and yeah. the Christian certainly yeah. has the best answer for that with a personal, communal God existing in the Trinity, three persons in one. Yeah. So again, the ethical and the theological are, are almost indistinguishable. As you, as you really push the limits of this. So I encourage y'all to check out the video. Um, share that with your kids, grandkids, and people in your group. Real, real powerful argument. Starts a lot of really good discussions.
1: And the moral argument answers in a short way. There's multiple answers. And Mike talked about this in the sermon today. Multiple answers. But in a short way, answers the question of the problem of evil. Mm -hmm. If an individual is asking you why there is evil, He is begging the question. That is, he assumes that there is evil. To assume that there is evil, you need a transcendent value, i.e., you need a God. So the question does assume the existence of God. So that's just a helpful thing when you're interacting with individuals, uh, to know that they actually, in that question, assume the existence of God.
0: Yeah, sometimes we look down on the question why. I guess because it's what little kids ask or something. But it's the question I ask the most of anybody uh I'm, as i sit with people and we deal with the problem of evil i would just say why why do you think there's evil in the world mm. what is it define it for me and it's stunning that most people really haven't thought about that and i don't say it to be snotty i say it to make sure we're talking about the same stuff yeah. and it's incredible how much um substance comes out of that discussion of just trying to say what is evil what do you mean yeah and it turns into a very
1: pastoral moment where you ask them what is evil, usually they're going to talk about their own personal struggles and their own evils, like this woman at the well, right? She has her personal struggles, the evils she's engaged with and the evils done to her that Christ does not neglect, Uh, certainly
0: not for a theological discussion, but hits at home at that. And think about not just her personal decisions that led her into personal sin, but the cultural evils experienced upon a female in those times where she was in many ways utterly dependent upon a man so would quickly go grab a husband anytime she was not with one and so you have this confluence of the personal and the cultural that comes together and our our, you're right our lord does not duck it he does not skirt it he attacks it (laughs) yeah he attacks it in in, in all of its uh in all of his fury and i'm driven to think of what was this successful or why was it successful? We all see it's successful. This discussion of the woman at the well. And I think traditionally I thought it was successful because she seems to come to faith that she recognizes Messiah and recognizes Jesus Messiah and accepts that as I've continued to think more on that. I think the real reason she was successful is because she was obedient. It wasn't merely that she accepted Christ Because how would we ever know if she really did? I mean, it could just be a sentence with not any real meaning or force behind it. We know the authenticity of her conversion because of the obedience that flows out of it, Mm. which is that she runs back and tells the town and drags everybody out and becomes this incredible witness. So in many ways, we, we need to challenge ourselves as teachers. Um, we're the ones that till the soil. We're the ones that nurture the roots. Mike Glenn has often shared with me, uh, some wisdom he received from a preacher before him is that uh, preaching is is a cut flower preaching is a cut flower there's not a lot of soil there there's not a lot of roots that that happens in many ways in our groups as we're developing and nurturing our people so the measure of success for us needs to be obedience we measure knowledge we measure understanding as a function of people's obedience and
1: I think uh, that goes back to our earlier discussion about the Holy Spirit and we being the temple. The way we have obedience is through the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. And that's uh, a great comfort. Even when we're crossing cultures, I don't have to bring somebody to my temple. I take that with me. The Spirit goes with me. So it's no longer like an Israelite. If I'm in uh, Assyria, hey, we have to go all the way to Jerusalem. I'm taking that with me. Uh, and he's given me power in that and authority
0: in that, as we talked about today, because dwelling within me is the spirit of God. That's right. And the Spirit's already done the work on the other end. Yeah. That person's entire life uh, converging on this one moment, this one discussion with you. Your success is, are you obedient? Are you obedient to God's story? Or are you obedient to your story? Our advice, take another temple with you. Don't yeah. do it by yourself. There's a reason Christ sends out yeah. by twos. Yeah. All right, so the story of this, and you've you've used the word you've done a lot better than me is gospel conversations that's the the topic of today. We've certainly hit a lot of content arguments, talked about the ethical theological talked about the the theological notion of temple and god's presence um how do all- how does all this terminate in gospel conversations The person of Christ,
1: mm. and we see that in our Lord's conversation too. Ultimately, even when she, he begins, he tells her, your real need is me. So your ethical needs, your intellectual needs, all these needs, all those are answered by me, by my person. So you ultimately, not every conversation needs a, a you're building up in your relationships to get to the point to help this individual and you help them by getting, pointing them or giving them the person of Christ or showing them this person, this human man who is fully man, fully God, answers all your questions and will solve all your ethical issues uh, and is the only way of life.
0: Yeah, let's abstract this as much as we can. We have a broken person and we have the person and work of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And I don't see where those ingredients are any different in any of our conversations today. We all believe that the bulk of the people we come across, I would argue all of them, church folk included, yeah. are broken people. Uh, the only difference is that we, as the temples of God, we have Christ with us. They don't. They don't. So in many ways, a gospel conversation is just you listening and let them expound upon their brokenness. Are you inviting them and being welcoming to them to engage the ethical realm? Because I guarantee you they're broken ethically. Just let them share it with you, and then you share it with them, Christ. It's really, it's really that simple. Mm. It's just time mm. and listening, honestly.
1: Yeah, and it could be as simple as if Paul has a problem, he comes and shares that problem with me. I share my problems or past problems. And tell them, my Lord has helped me with these. I'm not free of all sins. I'm not free of those things. But he's given me purpose. He's given me direction. And that purpose and that direction has done a work in me. Uh, I'm not who I used to be. Definitely with individuals who you've once sinned against, it is incredible to go up and apologize. And apologize because of what Christ has done for you and say hey that is not acceptable in my savior's eyes those are great witnessing opportunities it's in- incredible witness yeah in workplaces when you've erred, you set yourself apart by saying hey I've erred, I've done something wrong that's not good that's not who I am and definitely not who I am in my savior those are incredible I think in this world Paul you can agree with me if it's your experience uh, it's so rare that a person actually apologizes for something they've done wrong and to even apologizing
0: breeds authenticity, which is what everybody's after.
1: Yeah. And to even go up to a person and say, Hey, I've, I've done you wrong. I'm sorry that it, that's going to be so rare and so foreign to that individual. They're going to want to know. So you have a opportunity to represent Christ when you do well by saying, Hey, I, This isn't by my strength, but the strength of Christ. And when you do bad, by saying, hey, that's not who my Savior is. That's pretty
0: much every every action that you have. Every action that you have. So what does it look like on your campus? What does it look like in your group? What are the ethical issues that your group members and their families are dealing with and are wrestling with? Are you as group leader equipping them theologically, biblically, to tackle that and then to help others through it that's the goal that's our life and we'll know we're getting there when we see the obedience